Hello and welcome to the Transfer Window, the podcast that brings you the news before it becomes news, as well as insight and analysis into all the things you're talking about in the beautiful game. On today's pod, we've got lots of exciting uh, insights into what's going on at Old Trafford with Renault Fernandez, who has been by far the best player at Manchester United. Of course, we'll be discussing Project Bigger Picture, or is it actually a horror movie for English football, as well as some Spurs news and also uh, transfer news roundup over, of course, the next few days before the EFL window closes. I mean, McGarren with me, as always, is Duncan Castles. Duncan, I'm uh, very much intrigued uh, by this uh, news you have from Manchester United regarding Ole Gunnar Solskjaer's position, which we have discussed last week on the podcast and how there is not as much a solidarity of um, feeling behind the manager in terms of faith given the opening to the season. But I understand you have information regarding one of the most influential players and his feelings towards the coach as well as his feelings about how things could improve and get better. Yeah, we've talked in this podcast a number of times about the fact that senior players at Manchester United have not been entirely impressed by Willie Gunnar Solskjaer's management, um, his coaching, his man management, uh, the physical fitness regimes they use, tactical decisions, um, in-game decisions, all of those have been issues. And it's not that Solskjaer is disliked. There's just a sense from top-level players who've had experience with some of the best coaches in the world that he's not world-class. He's not um, top of his, his field and therefore the club or the team is being held back by that um, I think the the worry for him here is that has now spread to uh, as you say arguably the best player in the team certainly the, the player who made the difference coming in at the end of the January window Bruno Fernandes um, we saw in Manchester United's last game the horrendous 6-1 home defeat to Tottenham Hotspur that Fernandez was substituted at half-time. There's been some reports subsequent to that about um, what he was saying on his way into the dressing room at half-time, shouting, we are supposed to be Manchester United, this shouldn't be happening, and that he was questioning Solskjaer's tactics. Um, I'm told that is correct, um, that happened and uh, that uh, was one of the things that contributed to him being substituted and removed for the second half of that game and replaced by Fred. What I'm also hearing, and this comes from a um, source very close to the player, is that Fernandez's opinion of Solskjaer is similar to that of other senior players in the team. He does not think he is strong enough uh, to manage the squad and does not have the capabilities to push the players they have forward in the direction uh, they should go. Um, On top of that, I understand that Fernandes is angry with the club um, in the sense that what they did in the summer window did not cohere um, with his expectations of what would happen when he arrived 
at Manchester United in the Premier League in that they haven't, in his view, signed players required to improve what is clearly a substandard squad um, to the level where they can fight for titles against Manchester City, against Liverpool and against the top clubs in Europe now that they're back in the Champions League. So there, there is a, a discontent there with the club and a discontent there with the manager. Um, it's not entirely surprising to me that that's happened. As I say, this is a, this is a common pattern within the dressing room, um, this opinion of Solskjaer. Fernandez is notorious for being highly competitive as an individual. Um, he comes across as a, as a very nice, um, kind of almost unassuming individual in post-match interviews. But talking to people who know him in Portugal in the dressing room, it's a different story. He has been competitive. He has not been, uh, not, not taken his time when he's been dissatisfied with the performance of teammates or dissatisfied with the performance of coaches at previous clubs and got involved in, in this kind of, um, face to face conflict, I suppose you could say before. Um, I think it adds significantly to the pressure on Solskjaer. We talked in previous podcasts that, um, that Manchester United have this long-standing interest in Maurizio Pochettino. There are other top coaches on the market, including Max Legri, who's not been contacted by Manchester United, but would obviously be a candidate to replace him. Um, and my understanding from uh, the dressing room at Manchester United, there's a feeling that Solskjaer's time is limited. There's an expectation that he will be replaced as coach, which again, I think is a very difficult situation for a manager once the dressing room believes um, there is a potential that the manager can change and that someone else will come in and improve results. You often see that becoming effectively a fait accompli and that they, um, they almost withdraw their labor um, or don't play at the top of their performance levels until it happens because they feel that the person to blame for the bad results are not them, it's the, it's the man managing them. I think one of the most um, surprising, maybe not surprising parts of this particular development, Duncan, is that Fernandez has been there for such a short space of time. Um, and, you know, in Scotland, we see things like, well, he sussed them out quite quickly there. Uh, in terms of Solskjaer, that is, uh, and realised that he's not up to the job uh, that he is currently occupying, and that is as obviously manager of Manchester United. Um, the fact that there was a confrontation at half-time um, in the 6-1 dribbling by Spurs, uh, look, that's natural, but it also, um, also signifies that uh, Fernandez is not scared to obviously uh, not just vent his opinion or his anger, but also uh, in front of other teammates. Um, and we know that there's been criticism of Solskjaer from other senior players at Manchester United with regards to uh, the way the team is set up and how it is set up tactically as well for some games and how they do not... Uh, use the resources they have to the best of their potential ability. So um, I just wonder now, are we on a sort of clock ticking down situation here 
with regards to Solskjaer being sacked um, because the board have been extremely patient um, and the owners have been also very indulgent of Solskjaer in the time he's been in the job. Well, if you look at the sequence of, of games they have coming up, he definitely needs to turn results around in, in the fashion he's managed to do previously when being in this position previously. So they play Newcastle United away um, on Saturday, then Paris Saint-Germain in the Champions League, Chelsea at home, Leipzig in the Champions League, Arsenal at home. Now, that is an intimidating set of fixtures. You can say, of course, that Solskjaer's best results as manager have been against the stronger teams. So it could be that he, you know, reverts to the, the pack defense, uh, counterattack football and gets sufficient results from those games for, you know, the, the punditry, which has obviously been massively in support of Solskjaer from the start. I think I'm right in saying that Gary Neville has yet to criticize anything. Um, his friend has done. As manager, um, even the, the smallest of decisions as a manager. So you would expect that if he comes up as a result against Paris or Chelsea, there will be the, the, the familiar discussion of he has them on the right path and they're playing the right football, um, all the things we've heard before. The other element here is I think you're right, the Glazers like having Solskjaer in charge. He's non-confrontational from their perspective. Um, he was offered in the transfer window the opportunity to criticise the lack of spending on priority positions. And he uh, actually became angry when he was asked that question at one point and responded and said it had absolutely nothing to do with uh, with with the ownership and with, with spending and, and wasn't related to results. So he has defended them. He's cheap from a, a salary perspective. Um, he has helped them sell this cultural reboot story where... Um, there is no expectation upon them to deliver trophies in the short term. Um, you, you have a Manchester United manager going into the season saying his target for the season is to finish third. Um, they have sold that story effectively that it will need time to rebuild the squad and do not expect to win in the short term. So you have, a, you know, again, a chunk of the people who commentate on Manchester United and a lot of support saying, well, yeah, it will take a while. We need to, to strip everything back to basics and, and restart again. All of that suits the Glazers as long as they are um, in the Champions League and have the, the revenue from Champions League football guaranteed. What we have seen with them <laughs> with every previous manager that they've appointed is once they, they see that as in doubt, then they start making decisions to change the manager. So a sustained period of, of bad form, I think, will be very hard for Solskjaer to survive, even though the preference of Woodward and the Glazers would be to retain him as, as coach. Duncan, given the um, what appeared to be... Uh, panic buying on the last day of the transfer window for Manchester United in which they, they bought two right wingers, obviously as we know um, a left back and a 33 year old striker who has played very few games in the last seven months um, can we expect Manchester United's um, management and I mean management above Solskjaer to actually have a plan with regards to a succession 
I they know who they want to come in, and they've already been in touch and talked to him. I know that we uh, we have said that they've been in touch with Mauricio Pochettino, but um, it it doesn't look like a very attractive proposition for any coach going there at the moment, given what seems to be a very very um, chaotic. Uh, buying strategy with regards to recruitment and players, as well as uh, the fact that you know their their ambitions seem to be set very low in terms of, as you just said, um, Solskjaer saying he wants to be third in the Premier League. Do they have a plan? Well, they, they like to pretend they have a plan, but I, as we've said before, it, the plan looks very ad hoc. The cultural reboot story looks to me like something that was conjured up after they had Solskjaer in place uh, as a way to buy themselves time and, and as an explanation of having Solskjaer there. Um, they bounced around in transfer market strategy over the years. They bounced around in type of managers. Absolutely, they've talked to Maurizio Pochettino and, and that goes way back to when Louis van Gaal was in charge and Pochettino was the alternative option to, to Jose Mourinho. So, it's not that they are not in contact with alternatives. Do they have a coherent plan to move forward? Of course, they will tell you that they do, but they'll tell you that coherent plan is the reboot and, and Solskjaer and um, waiting a couple more years for all the, the their excellent recruitment, the recruitment that Ed Woodward tells us is world-class, to uh, pay dividends and, and see them um rise to the, the top of the, the Premier League again. From the coach's perspective, yeah, I, I think you have to be aware if you're going to Manchester United of the problems of the club. Uh, it's not coincidental that they've gone seven years post-Ferguson without winning the Premier League trophy and chewed through managers who have done very well in other positions such as David Moyes, Louis van Gaal and Mourinho. Um, in that period, and, and damaged their reputations in the process. But it, it's fascinating, I think, watching managers when these big club jobs come up because it almost seems as though they don't want to do their homework. Um, you know, Mourinho should really have known, had he done proper investigatory process, how difficult the Glazers were to work with. And problems there were in the dressing room, problems with the setup at the club. He only really became fully aware of that once he was in the job. I, maybe Pochettino is smarter. Maybe he will look at this and say, actually, this is a this is a dangerous place to go. And to be fair to him, last time they were interested in doing him, the brief I got from people close to him was he turned down that opportunity. He wasn't offered the job, but he steered away from that opportunity because he felt it would be a bad time to move to Manchester United. That He'd be risking too much going there at that stage of his career, having he would want to take control of transfers or be involved in transfers, but at that stage didn't have a great deal of experience in them. So he felt that the, the long-term a solution for him was to remain at, at uh, Tottenham at the time. So he has shown that intelligence there. Whether he will, if the opportunity arises now, um, having been out of football for a considerable period of time, wanting to get back into the game will be interesting, as it will be interesting to see how much he can add in performance just by being there. I would expect an, an immediate uptick with someone like Pochettino because he's a better coach 
he has better methods. He he um, he handles players in a superior fashion. He's more intelligent tactically. So regardless of the problems at the club, which are massive, uh, generally at the at the executive level, but also through you know elements of the of the uh, fitness teams of the of the medical staff of the recruitment staff, there are big issues there. But if you put a better coach in place you should get better performances from the players. So things should improve with a better coach. That's not saying everything will be fixed, but you will get better out of the, of the, the resources that are currently available on the playing field. Well, my information from speaking to people close to Mauricio Pochettino Duncan is that he prefer to go to Manchester City than Manchester United as a project. Um, and clearly they are a club better equipped to give him the opportunity to achieve trophies, which he has yet to do in his managerial career. Whether or not that becomes the case or not, we shall find out. But certainly with Pep Guardiola in the last year of his contract, that may well become an option for Pochettino and one perhaps is worth waiting for. We've been speaking about Manchester United, obviously, and the problems they have regarding Ole Gunnar Solskjaer and discontent with his management style in the dressing room. If we were to be slightly uh, sort of um, perspective-based, we'd say, well, we now know what Manchester United have been doing with their time um, instead of looking at coaches and buying players because uh, project bigger picture has uh, become a very, very... Uh, Mm, certainly a um, controversial subject in English football regarding the proposed restructure, um, which has been mooted on behalf of Liverpool and Manchester United through the mouthpiece of, weirdly, EFL chairman Rick Parry. Um, Duncan, I'm told that this is something which has been worked on for 18 months that the Glazers employed a a strategic consultancy company to conduct a feasibility study into how the Premier League could change, how it could be monetised better, um, certainly in Manchester United's case, and of course that of Liverpool. Liverpool have obviously, and FSG, their owners, have um, also been doing their research and homework with regards to um, putting together proposals, of course, which we saw leaked, if you like, although obviously a very um, premeditated leak um, regarding um, what they were proposing to do in terms of uh, new broadcasting uh, rights, as well as bailing out um, the lower pyramid of English football in terms of the EFL, although that seems to um, be a little um, less solid than perhaps it was being presented. Um, people I've spoken to today, Duncan, have said that, that you know there's a Premier League meeting tomorrow, it will be completely rejected, and uh, the Premier League um, will unite uh, as a group, uh, obviously without United and Liverpool, you would suspect, to condemn their proposals and say that this is never going to work. But I think you and I, um, having spoken to our contacts in football finance, as well as in uh, 
the football administration world, I think we are more realistic and we know this is just the beginning of something uh, which will change football in England. Football in England, football in Europe, football in the world. Um, for those of our listeners who haven't uh, listened to a podcast we did uh, in May with Roger Mitchell, former chief executive of the, the Scottish Premier League, you, I would recommend going back to that and listening to how Roger explained the inevitable move in football um, towards a European Super League where the powerhouse clubs like Manchester United and Liverpool would take advantage of their global supports to hoover up more of the broadcast revenues, to take more power in the game and to establish themselves uh, forever in, the, in an elite position. And I think if you if you listen to that and and put it in the perspective of this story that's come out, um, broken by friend of the podcast Sam Wallace, um, with a lot of detail, and I know I think we should go through a bit of the the detail here. You you'll see that it is set up um, in the long term interests, in the short term, medium, and long term interests of those big clubs, Liverpool, Manchester United, and although they haven't been directly associated with it yet, Chelsea. Tottenham, Manchester City and Arsenal. Um, there are a lot of proposals there. Um, the key one being presented uh, and the one that has been extremely popular with EFL clubs is that they would receive a quarter billion pounds bailout um, to cover them through this COVID period. Um, it seems that that is not actually pure cash. It would be an advance on future broadcast rights. So it's basically a loan, which, um, you know, if you divide it by the number of clubs in the EFL, works out to about three, three and a half million pounds per club, although it's unlikely to go uh, be split that way. I would expect more of it to go to championship clubs and League Two clubs, for example. They want to reduce the size of the Premier League um, to 18 teams. They want to scrap the League Cup and the Community Shield, all of which would create more room to play European matches. Um, they're going to give money to the FA, um, £100 million, split in various ways. Why is this important? Because the FA has a golden share in the Premier League, so could, in principle, block any changes to the Premier League structure of the type that they are proposing. So the FA needs uh, to be bought off in this process. They are going to set aside um, 6% of Premier League gross revenues for infrastructure funding. So you could have uh, a percentage of your stadium rebuild funded by a, a central uh, pot. Um, they will introduce a hard salary cap in the EFL, uh, UEFA-style financial fair play regulations to, to try and keep clubs from going in to uh, serious loss-making stages. Um, they would increase the broadcast revenue, so you'd have central broadcast revenue pool. So instead of negotiating rights for the Premier League separate to uh, the EFL, it would all be done together with the EFL promised a 25% share of net broadcast rights after 8.5% um, annual costs are deducted by the league. Um, they would end parachute payments, which is something that Rick Parry has identified as a major problem in the, the championship. Uh, increase the amount of loans, um, add a new pre-season tournament. And then, and I think this is the absolute key measure, 
um, or the, there are two absolute key measures. One, they would allow clubs to sell exclusively direct pay-per-view rights to eight games per season. So Manchester United, Liverpool, Chelsea, all the clubs would be would take eight of their matches from the central broadcasting contract and sell them direct to consumers on their own rights, which could have a, a massive revenue generating potential um, for clubs like Manchester United and Liverpool, which I think you can discuss later, Ian. And then, and this this is the one that where which has caused such ire, is that the top six clubs in the Premier League, coupled with three other um, long-term shareholders, would be given the ability to veto any changes in the rules of the Premier League. So essentially, you'd put those big six in control of the rules across English football, um, which would uh, allow them the ability to approve television deals, um, veto new owners, club owners coming in to anywhere else in English football, uh, essentially hand over control of the league to uh, to those top six clubs. The EFL it seems to be very much in favour. Uh, the EFL seem to have been the EFL clubs seem to have been bought off by this idea of here is two hundred and fifty million pounds and more broadcast revenue down the line to get you out of your financial difficulties. I'm hearing that there are clubs within the Premier League who are not in the big six, who also are broadly in favour of this proposal. And we're, we're talking here mainly about the yo-yo clubs, clubs who, who spend some time in the Premier League, then go back to the Championship, a West Bromwich Albion, for example. They can see the sense of this deal. Other clubs vehemently opposed, West Ham United, have not quite gone on record uh, in their opposition to it, but have briefed uh, the BBC extensively that they that they do not like the idea, um, do not like the way it's been presented. Um, interestingly, I'm hearing that clubs like Leeds United, who feel that they could establish themselves at the top of the English game, given a few years in the Premier League, are also opposed to it. Um, but in some ways, I, I don't think the specific details of this plan matter because I think I think you're right. The Premier League will vote this week against it. Um, and I'm hearing that it will kind of be buried for a while uh, in terms of discussion. But this is the, the top clubs putting their heads above the parapet and saying this is the way football is going to be reorganised. We are going to... Um, take more of the money and more of the control. Um, so you, you work out a way in which you allow us to do it. That is the pattern that's going to happen. And they, they've got kind of really strong leverage here. They, they've opportunist, opportunistically taken advantage of COVID. So you have the EFL teams needing a bailout and you see the response from them. But also they have the leverage of saying, if you don't give us what we want, we will go to um, the European Super League. Because that is being set up. Juventus want it. The leading clubs in Europe want it. Um, their worry is whether they can get the Premier League clubs to join. We are ready to go there if necessary, if that's what you make us do to get full control of TV revenues. But they now got the secondary leverage where they've got Rick Parry and the EFL saying, well, why don't you resign your Premier League positions and go and join, join us in the EFL and, and make a de facto new league under um, the structure you want 
where the residual Premier League clubs will either have to see themselves lose the revenue or be forced to sort of stick their tails between the leg and come and join you anyway. So I think the path for a change in football is set, regardless of what degree of outrage there has been in the media and outrage from some of the residual Premier League clubs about this proposal. I agree with that, Duncan. In the last 48 hours, I've spoken to one chairman stroke owner and two chief executives of Premier League clubs who are outside of the top six. And they are under no illusion that this is the beginning of change, that regardless of how they vote at tomorrow's meeting and the statement that they put out rejecting these particular proposals, that change is coming regardless. Um, as Dominic Cummings likes to say, Duncan, a hard drain is going to fall. And, uh, that seems to be the, um, the way that they're looking upon it. And so what they're trying to do and what they are been talking about over the last 48 hours and will do again in, uh, their virtual conference call tomorrow is to say, we have to manage this as best we can and get the best possible deal. And look, what this is about is broadcasting rights. There's no doubt about it. Everyone in football has known for a long time that the only reason billionaires and venture capital groups and uh, companies like uh, Fenway Sports Group, people, uh, families like the Glazers uh, have got involved in Premier League football is because there is an exit strategy or at least a very lucrative um, last payday. And that is in real-time streaming of live football matches sold directly to individual fans from their platform. And Manchester United have made it very clear that they believe, and you can believe it or not, it's up to you uh, in terms of our listeners, they have 1.1 billion supporters because of the social media outreach uh, in the world, which is one seventh of the world's population. 253 million, they claim, are in China alone. China currently has the um, largest 5G network in the world and is capable of streaming real-time football uh, so therefore, what I'm saying is what you see on the pitch, if you're in the stadium, comes to you with only a minor delay. I mean, by maybe a second. Where at the moment, if you're watching a live game on BT Sport or Sky or BBC, whatever, you're probably experiencing an, a 10 to 12 second delay on the actual streaming to your television. Now, that's important because... Uh, the gaming uh, industry, and by that I mean gambling industry, uh, currently has a much higher um, rate of conversion of information than broadcast satellite television does. And therefore, uh, you would effectively be watching a football match, but find out that your team had gone a goal down or a goal up uh, 10 seconds before you see it on your computer screen. Now, 
So live streaming, as in real-time live streaming, obviously takes away that, which makes it more valuable and economically viable in terms of uh, paying your one, two dollars, etc., etc. Now, if you are Manchester United or Liverpool, and you decide that you're going to sell Manchester United versus Liverpool and vice versa to your own fans or through your own platform individually for that $1.50 or $2, then when you have the global outreach and uh, fan base that these clubs have, bear in mind this, at this moment in time, the domestic, only the domestic uh, broadcasting contract provides around £178 million. Clubs like Manchester United and Liverpool could make that amount of money in one afternoon of basically streaming a United v Liverpool derby or a Manchester derby or a Liverpool derby, etc., etc. Therefore, not just bringing in revenue, which would could be 10, 15 times more per season in terms of their broadcast, but increasing the value of the club and, of course, the company's investment. And that's where we're at right now in terms um, of what these uh, television deals could represent with regards to um, what they currently earn to what they potentially could earn. And this is why uh, we're in this state now where um, this bigger picture proposal has been made. It's the opening salvo of what's going to be, I reckon, a confrontation which will play itself out over a year, 18 months, um, before those clubs, and it's not just United and Liverpool, it will be as you've said, Duncan, Manchester City, Arsenal, Chelsea, Tottenham, who will also want to be part of this because they also have that global outreach in terms of supporter and fan base. So they have the potential to sell uh, broadcasting rights individually on their own platform. They will still be part of the collective agreement because, of course, they'll still get money from that as well. So this really is the best of both worlds for those clubs because they don't need to break the collective agreement in terms of what BT and Sky pay um, for what they have right now. All they do is they break the overseas agreement, which currently brings in a lot of money for clubs like Burnley or Brighton or West Brom or Fulham. Um, but obviously that, that particular contract will be devalued by the replacement of at the moment, the proposal is eight games, but you can be absolutely guaranteed those eight games will be cher cherry-picked by the big clubs in terms of which ones are chosen and which ones are broadcast on their own platforms for their own benefit. Now, it's all very well saying, uh, Duncan, that, you know, oh, the EFL are in favour because they get the money and some Premier League clubs might be in favour of the model because they also may benefit financially. I suppose the question outside of that particular, let's just uh, pick up in terms of financial gain, is what does that mean 
in terms of the power grab by these clubs and how they will then govern English football uh, over everyone else. Yeah, you, you talk about that 1.1 billion fan base that Manchester United claim. Um, it's very hard to believe that's accurate. But let's say they only get 1% of that to watch one of these pay-per-view streams. So 10 million people for a, a Manchester United-Liverpool match or Manchester United-Man City match, for example. They charge £5 per viewer um, and they do it for eight games in a season. That's £400 million just there, which is um, you know, more than the revenue of virtually every club in the Premier League. And that's the problem in terms of if you, once you bring this model in and you allow clubs to sell their own rights, then you inevitably have a massive distortion way beyond what we have already in competitive balance because the Liverpools, the Manchester Uniteds in particular, Arsenal, I think are in this category too, with the global fan base are the ones who will be able to extract massive revenue for their games. Whereas if you're Brighton or West Bromwich Albion, pay-per-view will hopefully help you. You might be able to increase your revenue base, but your relative revenue base compared to the top clubs will diminish, which will means you will not be able to compete on the field. Um, I think we've been talking about this as a, as a kind of Manchester United, Liverpool, Manchester City, do they leave for the European Super League and leave a rump Premier League? I think thinking about this and talking to people this week, you can see a structure and, and certainly the structure that's been proposed by Rick Parry is one in which they could probably have their cake and eat it in that they can go to a European Super League. They make room to play those games. They take control of the English structure by having the uh, the, the, the rule-making authority and by preventing competitors coming in, so the veto over new owners. They carry on competing in the English League. They build bigger squads so they can do that. And they take whatever revenue is left, the majority of whatever revenue is left in the English League from their pay-per-view uh, setup and take the money from the European Super League simultaneously, which obviously will give them a competitive advantage in the European Super League going forward. So it, it's I think it's very intelligent on their part to deliver this situation of COVID into one where they try and get more power in England um, as I say, I think the, the path of, of these clubs taking more control and becoming stronger on the field is inevitable. It's now a question of, of how it's managed by the rest of the game um, and to what level the other clubs can survive in a, in a, in a competitive, um, interesting structure going forward. Because once... Say, say they leave for the Super League. What is the value of the Premier League on a global perspective stripped of its six most powerful clubs? How much do the broadcast revenue diminish if you don't have them anymore? And and we see what we've seen this week. And, and look, I think they've also been clever in the way they've, they've put Rick Parry in front of the cameras, uh, the chairman of the EFL to sell the project to something he thinks is a good idea and not said anything on record themselves. 
So this has been presented as it's their idea, but they, they, they aren't actually verbally committed to it yet. But they've already got the, the, the guy in charge of the, the, the championship and League One and League Two. And the majority of clubs in that structure on board with a proposal that would give them effectively total control over the league at this stage. Um, so they know that uh, it's not too hard to, to throw a few crumbs to the residual part of English football and, and get their power expanded in England uh, and then focus their energies on, on becoming the most powerful clubs in European football. It certainly looks from the outside to be morally opportunistic in terms of the timing. Um, clearly when Championship, League One, League Two clubs are desperate for financial input and are not seeing it. I mean, it's even uh, almost quite distasteful that Premier League clubs called off negotiations with regards to a bailout for EFL clubs until after the transfer window for the EFL closes uh, this Friday in order that they could means test clubs who have um, benefited from even small transfer fees, never mind large ones, which some clubs, of course, will benefit from, and we'll be coming to that in a minute uh, on the podcast. Um, yeah, it, it, but at the same time, it's it's no coincidence to me, Duncan. Um, I don't, you know, call me an old cynic, but um, first we've got Ferran Seriano talking about playing B teams in the EFL. Then we get the announcement at the end of last week regarding pay-per-view matches for the first time on uh, television that on games that fans can't attend at £15 a head. And all of a sudden, oh, look, it's Project Bigger Picture. You know, these things do not happen as a coincidence. It's like we just you just dip your toe, you dip your toe, and then you jump in. And clearly, this has been a process. And we know from our um, conversations that you and I have both had with people involved in this, that this has been in the planning for a long time. But the fact that it's been kind of almost leaked slowly in different ways, and I think we'll continue to see this over the next weeks and months, um, it's a case of effectively climatizing people to the idea of change. So um, you basically you, you put out information to see how people respond to it. And then you respond to what the response is by playing your hand in a more careful way as you go forward. And I think, and I don't know if you agree, that that's exactly what we're going to see. Um, in the as I said, the coming weeks and months. Well, they they effectively they now know that two hundred and fifty million pounds and that structure is sufficient to buy the EFL clubs off. Um, so they have that that potential, that threat to the rest of the Premier League. Those in the Premier League who are opposed to this, that well, if you don't go along with our proposals, we will resign. We can resign and go and join the EFL, and you can be left with a with a rump Premier League that will not have the global attraction that the current one has, and will effectively end up falling away. I mean, a phrase one of your contacts used 
I think was was telling here, um, comply or die. Um, and I think that that summarizes the position that's being faced with the by the weaker Premier League clubs and and also to uh, you know a chunk of the EFL clubs. It's if you want our money, if you want the money that we have access and control over, you have to give us more power and let us structure the the English league going forward in the way we want it to be structured. Change is a coming, that's for sure. And also changes are coming, Duncan, um, at Tottenham Hotspur, where uh, you have learned that Jose Mourinho has been um, listening to one of his major signings of this window with regards to another new recruit who would be coming from a rather, rather less expected source um, in terms of bolstering their defensive options. Yeah, as we, as we told you in the podcast for a while now, um, Jose Mourinho had prioritised the, the signing of a centre-back in this window. It's the one position where he hasn't been provided with a player yet. Um, they did make an offer to Internazionale for Milan Skriniar, who was Mourinho's first choice for the position, but were well off um, Inter's 60 million asking price for that player. Um, Tottenham scouting department have proposed an alternative from the championship, who's Joe Roden at Swansea City. Um, my understanding is that Mourinho has now talked to um, people he trusts on transfers about Roden um, to get a sense of whether he would be a good fit to the team for what he's looking for in defence. And also talked to Roden's uh, Wales teammate, Gareth Bale. And been told by Bale that um, Roden would be an excellent signing, that his his technical quality and his mental qualities are such that Bale would see him playing for any team in the world. And that has served to uh, give Mourinho a lot of faith that this would be a good signing for his team. He wants a, a quick centre-back, um, someone who's very competitive in one-on-one duels, which Roden is, and can kind of control the space ahead of his back four um, issues with the players he's got at the moment but I think that there's a potential there to pair Roden with Davinson Sanchez to have a very quick um, centre to to a back four um, and the you know <laughs> the expectation is it's going to go to the wire because Swansea City are asking uh, about £18 million for the 22 year old uh, Daniel Levy has offered considerably less and yeah, it wouldn't be a Daniel Levy transfer window if he didn't take a deal to the, the final stages trying to get the best value for him and his club in the process. I suspect Daniel Leverage is, as we speak, smoking a large cigar waiting for Friday to come round before he starts negotiating for Joe Roden. Um, but having watched him play, um, I think, yeah, I think Gareth Bale may just have got this right. I mean, I don't know if he plays golf with him or not, but certainly he looks like a decent player. Um, and having watched Eric Dyer play for England in the back three uh, over the last few days, I'd say that he would definitely be an upgrade on Eric Dyer in terms of a, a alternative at centre-back for Spurs. Um, also, Duncan, we're expecting some movement before uh, and on Friday, uh, possibly uh, what could be a record transfer from the championship 
to the Premier League in uh, another one of Brentford's shining lights. Yeah, we, we told you that there was an offer for £25 million for um, Saeed Benrama, their uh, attacking midfielder. Um, that offer is from West Ham United. It's been accepted by Brentford. Um, it also concludes, uh, includes uh, conditional payments of £5 million on top of the 25, which will come in stages um, to Brentford. Um, the deal really should have been done by now uh, because the club-to-club side has been organised. West Ham are offering Ben Rama a salary of £50,000 a week, which is a, a huge increase on his pay at Brentford. However, it's been complicated um, by uh, the agents of the player who are uh, quite new agents. I think changed them fairly recently. And uh, those agents have been trying to get a percentage of the transfer fee, I understand, from Brentford. Brentford have refused to pay that. And uh, as of this morning, the, the deal looked like it was um, in jeopardy. Um, other clubs in the Premier League have been interested. Uh, Crystal Palace, one of those. Uh, as I understand it, Crystal Palace have not been ready to go to the same uh, level of transfer fee that West Ham United have agreed. Um, I think I think it's a it's a good opportunity for Ben Rama to go to a club like West Ham and put himself in a platform in the Premier League, um, uh, demonstrate what he's capable of doing. If he plays well, then this is the kind of move where you see someone come in, have a good season, and then be targeted by the big six clubs and and move on to a, a higher level in their career. Um, the threat uh, that's been suggested is that he doesn't want to play anymore for Brentford and if they don't um, uh, chip in with a, with a percentage of the transfer fee then, then he would refuse to move. Um, it'll be interesting to see if that gets resolved before deadline and, uh, and the deal which the clubs want to do is completed or not. West Ham also still remain uh, interested in Josh King at Bournemouth. Um, and indeed, David Moyes is looking for more goals uh, for his team. But Ben Rama certainly has the um, ability to provide that as well. So it will be interesting to see how that one transpires. And of course, we will bring you that news first on the Transfer the Podcast. So it's hero and villain time, and I would like to invite Duncan to nominate his villain in football of the last few days. Uh, I think the villain of this week would be Gary Southgate. Um, or Gareth Southgate. Boo! St. Gareth, how can you do it? Um, for <laughs> what has become you know, quite a, a tetchy dispute between Tottenham Hotspur um, Tottenham's manager and the England national team manager over Harry Kane who uh, injured himself in training for England um, who Tottenham requested be returned to them to be um, treated and and handled rather than used on national team duties. Southgate refused uh, and indeed played him off the bench against Belgium after he was 2-1 up 
uh, after effectively the game had been put in a position where where he'd won, um, and and is now talking about playing Kane in the next Europa Nations League match, despite admitting that Kane had suffered um, muscular problems and that they'd gone to the extent of of having his his thigh muscle scanned um, to see if it was a, a substantial issue. Um, Southgate's argument is that the player feels fine and, and will hopefully be ready to play. Maybe he's right, but um, in the context of what is a pivotal season for Southgate, because his target is to win the Euros, to put your best player and your captain at risk for a competition which is of minor importance. This is not going to make albeit England haven't won a trophy for a long time, winning the Europa League is not going to make a great deal of difference to Southgate's legacy if he crashes out of the Euros um, minus one of his best players in the summer. Um, Kane had an extremely serious hamstring problem surgery last season. You know, The worst possible tear was how uh, Tottenham's medical staff reported it. He's in the middle of the most intense domestic season that he will experience and he's got to play Euros at the end. It just seems a, a daft risk to take on Southgate's part and, and to antagonise the the club manager and, and the club who pay the wages of his, his best player because you, you, know, you want to keep all parties on board during that season too. As our new friend and Tottenham legend, Graham Roberts pointed out to us on Twitter, Duncan, did you notice that? I did, yes. Yeah, um, I can't say that I'm a big fan of Robbo, given his time at Rangers, but I'll I'll certainly forgive him that for being a fan of the podcast. Um, so uh, I'm not sure if Gareth was shouting that from the top of Wembley. Did we did we think he was? <laughs> After what he said about Jose, <laughs> maybe maybe not. Um, okay, I'm going to go for a fairly obvious hero, but one that certainly. Um, definitely uh, deserves being lauded and that is Marcus Rashford who is with every week that passes turning into a very remarkable and caring young man as well as a very good footballer. Uh, last week of course it was announced that um, he would be awarded an MBE and instead of crowing about uh, the fact that he was getting the award he used his statement to challenge the government once again, as he did successfully in June, to continue the the uh, meal voucher scheme, uh, which he has supported in his fair share charity uh, as well, and uh, said that he would like to have a conversation with Prime Minister Boris Johnson about ensuring the fact that children who are in danger of going hungry or indeed living in poverty, um, do not go hungry beyond the October half-term break. Marcus Rashford, not for the first time, we salute you. That's it for us. I am sure you have liked what you've heard. And if you have, then please leave a five-star review on iTunes, and you know how that works. You can also subscribe to the Transfer Window podcast on YouTube. Just turn all notifications to on. Please join the discussion with us. You know where to find us. We are at Transfer Podcast on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter. 
uh, Duncan's at Duncan Castles. I'm at Garbo SJ. Continue the discussion with us. You know we love to engage with you. That's all for today. We will be with you later in the week. Thanks for listening. <laughs>